I think it's fair to say that with Amazing Spider-Man issue 51, covered 18 August 1967, John Romita had hit his stride with the character. Feeling that Steve Ditko could come back at any moment, Romita had spent the first year on the comic aping Ditko's style, as best he could, so as not to be too jarring an experience for the reader when Ditko, inevitably Romita felt, returned. But at this point, though, it was clear that Ditko wasn't coming back, and, as it would turn out, Ditko would never draw Spider-Man professionally ever again. Contrast this to John Romita, who would be defined by his run of the character for the rest of his career, and he would return to Spider-Man regularly for covers and promotional art pieces. In fact, it was Romita's version of Spider-Man that adorned the copious amounts of merchandise throughout the 70s, and his model sheets would be used for the well-remembered cartoon series from this same year. By this point, Stan Lee and John Romita, the primary creative team, realised that Amazing Spider-Man is theirs, and it's time to truly make it their own. The cover to issue 51 is a Romita masterpiece. Spider-Man is cowed into submission by an army of armed thugs, but central to the image is a tall, well-built man in a white suit, purple pinstriped pants and carrying a cane. He has a glowing tie pin, a cigarette in a long holder and a well-appointed bald head. He is the Kingpin, and we met him last issue. The Kingpin will become one of the best-remembered villains of the Romita age, appearing in numerous other media adaptations, including the recent Into the Spider-Verse feature film. He will be primarily an adversary for Spider-Man until the early 1980s, when Frank Miller will co-opt him for Daredevil. In the clutches of the Kingpin opens with one of those symbolic splash pages so beloved of artists in the Silver Age of comics. The Kingpin smashes a model of New York, declaring that with Spider-Man gone, the city is his. Apparently, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, Daredevil, any of the other plethora of New York superheroes wouldn't give a shit that this is occurring, only Spider-Man. This is, of course, following on from the last issue, when Spider-Man quit for about five minutes. Anyway, the Kingpin is making his move to take over the rackets. Apparently, underworld thugs all believe in democracy, to the point where the Kingpin has been elected de facto leader of the mobs. The Kingpin holds aloft a copy of the Daily Bugle and announces that Jonah Jameson, publisher and editor of that august publication, seems to sense something in the wind. He orders Blinker, what a great name, and a few other thugs to go over and bring Jameson back, see? And if he doesn't want to come, see? The Bugle will be looking for a new publisher, see? Blinker and co. leave, and then the Kingpin orders Big Turk to hit a few gas stations, a task Turk believes is well beneath his talents. Still, the Kingpin is boss, see? So he and a few men do what they are told. I presume this Big Turk is no relation to Turk from the Daredevil comics of the early 80s, given that they're different ethnicities. The gas station holdups do not go according to plan when Spider-Man blunders by. Our hero is fleet of foot and powerful of punch, bringing an end to this particular robbery, although Big Turk legs it. Interestingly, this is the first time Spider-Man hears the name Kingpin. Spidey tries to get some further information from the remaining mobsters, but the Rozzers arrive and disturb his Q&A session. Spidey takes off to sell his photos, only to suddenly remember he told Jonah to take his job and shove it. Oh dear. Elsewhere, Big Turk and his associates burst in on the Kingpin's meeting with Frederick Foswell. 
You remember Foswell, right? He worked for the Bugle, but was revealed to be an underworld enforcer, the big man. After serving his time, Jonah took a punt on him and gave him his job back. Well, Foswell wants a slice of the Kingpin's action, see, and has offered his services to the literal big man. Turk and his chums, however, are none to impress that Spider-Man is not only not dead, but interfering in their action. They threaten to curtail the Kingpin's crime reign, but the Kingpin destroys both men with his bare hands. This is a physical confrontation like no other. The Kingpin is portrayed as not particularly tall, but massive in build. His hands dwarf Turks. His fingers, when balled into a fist, are like a tray of large sausages. And, in true Stanley fashion, we are asked to wonder how someone so big can move so fast. With this minor rebellion crushed, the Kingpin turns to Foswell. A solution to the J. Jonah Jameson problem may just have presented itself. Speaking of the irascible Mr. J, over at the Bugle we get our first look at Joseph Robbie Robertson. It's a blink and you'll miss him cameo, but there he is, lovable old Robbie. Did you know, trivia fans, that Robbie's first name was supposed to be Robert, but Stan changed it. This is a pretty wonderful scene. Jonah is at his blustering best, yelling about wanting Peter back one minute, then changing his mind when Peter walks in the door. Ned Leeds doesn't know which way to turn, and what's lovely about the scene is it shows how well Peter can handle Jonah, something that Ned doesn't yet seem to have learned. Peter is interested in where Foswell is, and thus takes off on his bike to try and find the elusive reporter. It's interesting to look here at the dynamic between Peter and Jonah and the differences. Both men are using the other for personal gain, but both men seem aware of that fact, so it doesn't come across as manipulative. One reason we could put forward for Peter accepting that Jonah never pays him top dollars for his pictures is that he feels a little bit guilty about taking selfies and selling them. Sure, it's a mutually beneficial relationship, but Peter doubtless has residual feelings of guilt. He is Peter Parker, after all. Likewise, let's look at how Peter and Jonah view Foswell. Jonah, the hard-ass, the workplace bully, Mr. Law and Order, the zero-tolerance guy, not only forgave Foswell for his crimes, but also gave him a second chance, feeling that Foswell had served his time and deserved another go. Peter, by contrast the more liberal of the two, never trusted Foswell after his release from prison, just like he never trusted Otto Octavius after his release. Peter seemingly doesn't believe in second chances, or perhaps more realistically, doesn't believe people can change. I've always found this fascinating, especially in comparison to Batman or Superman, both of whom believe in rehabilitation. Just one of the many foibles that makes Peter relatable, I guess. Peter rides past the coffee bean, or is it the silver spoon? Stan seems to think they're interchangeable. Inside, Murray Jane, Gwen and the ever-clueless Harry Osborne see Peter ride by and bemoan him not dropping in because MJ wanted a lift home and Gwen wants, well, other things. This is a great scene. MJ digs the knife in, pointing out that Gwen doesn't like it when she's alone with Peter, a sly smile spreading across her face. Dopey Harry points out that Gwen is with him, to which MJ pointedly replies that's only because Peter didn't ask her first. This is only two panels, and yet so much is said in it. MJ being more aware of the personality dynamics than poor Harry, her needling of Gwen and Gwen's avoidance of the question of Peter Parker and her interest in him. 
Perhaps most interesting is MJ herself. She reveals nothing about what she thinks. Does she like Peter? Is her winding up of Gwen's self-defence or the teasing of a friend? What is clear is that MJ really doesn't think a lot of Harry to sow the seeds of discord so blatantly about his girlfriend and his best friend. No wonder, ultimately, Harry fell off the ledge. Peter, of course, is completely oblivious to all this. He stumbled across the Kingpin's men leaning on the owner of a swanky club and intervenes as Spider-Man. This is one of Stan's better scripted fights. Spider-Man's quips are genuinely amusing and his running rings around the bad guys is well choreographed by Ramita. The bad guys throw Spidey a curveball with a small grenade that means he must prop up the main support beam of the building as the patrons flee and the bad guys get away. A hero manages to slip a spider tracer on them before they go. Unbeknownst to Spidey, the Kingpin's goons have been watching the bugle, and when the building is nearly empty for the night, they snatch Jonah. It's not clear if this is a Ramita-plotted issue, but if it is, Ramita's work is top-notch here. He's set up the Kingpin's men, taking a two-pronged attack, which has brought Spider-Man and Jonah to the Kingpin's lure via different routes. He's also got Foswell in place to reveal his duplicity to Jonah. It's a great way of getting all the characters together for the conclusion. In confrontation with the Kingpin, Jonah is scurred but still stands up to this mountain of a man, showing Jonah's conviction. And we're finally moving away from Jonah being a two-dimensional caricature and into my preferred portrayal of an honourable journalist who just has a mad-on for Spider-Man. It's at this point that Spider-Man confronts the Kingpin for the first time, and there's a few more Stanisms along the lines of how can someone big be so fast, etc, 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 but the upshot is that the Kingpin throws Spider-Man around like a rag doll. Although later stories would establish the Kingpin is just a very, very, very strong man, I'm pretty sure here Stan and John meant him to have above-normal strength. The issue concludes with our hero defeated, Jonah in dire straits, and the Kingpin triumphant. Issue 52 is another of this run of iconic Ramita covers. Stan must be realising this as he has severely reduced the cover copy to let the art speak for itself. On this cover, an unconscious Spider-Man is manacled to the floor, back to back with a panicked J. Jonah Jameson. Water floods in from pipes on the wall. Ramita, let's be honest, owns the character by this point. To Die a Hero opens with the Kingpin's men carrying Spider-Man, still out of it, and pushing Jonah into the basement. Jonah is bricking it, accusing Spider-Man of being a fraud in the same breath that he tries to reason with the Kingpin. Both men are shackled, as they are on the cover, and then the water pipes are turned on. Jonah's abject terror here is palpable, and there's a feeling that this is Jonah's first true brush with death, a development that signifies the Kingpin as a new kind of villain. This Kingpin is a businessman, used to getting his own way. He steamrolls over anyone who does say no to him, using his position as well as manipulation and fear to get what he wants, all the while knowing he can get away with it due to his wealth and status. He's pretty reprehensible, more so really than any of Spider's other villains, in that his regular dealings are probably seen as normal to outsiders looking in. For the first time, Spider-Man is tackling that most heinous of criminals, the rich, seemingly respectable businessman. Interestingly, Stan provides only the smallest amount of expository dialogue, leaving the audience to pick everything up that's gone along as we move. Spider-Man starts to stir. The manacles prove no match for him, but as Jonah points out, it doesn't make any difference. The room is locked and watertight. It's pretty much an Adam West death trap, only this one feels real. 
I never felt Batman and Robin were any real danger, but Ramita does such a good job with Jonah's panicked face that I actually felt a measure of fear for the guy. I mean, I know Spider-Man will save the day, but part of the fun of these stories is believing that the situations feel dangerous. Kudos to Stan and John for pulling that off. Over at the Bugle, New City editor Robbie Robertson orders Ned Leeds to find out what has happened to Foswell and Jonah, Jonah's office door having been trashed. I didn't recall the thugs damaging anything when they kidnapped Jonah, and a flick back through the omnibus to the last issue reveals that this is a minor retcon on Stan's part. Robbie isn't given an introductory scene, he's just there. Some people have read this as Robbie always having been there, like Chekhov in The Wrath of Khan, or there's a moment around issue 50 where Robbie joins the staff and we just didn't see it. Going on, different writers will do both of these things. Some will assume Robbie was always there and others will have him start at the bugle concurrently with the issue he first appeared in. Ned goes off to find out what he can, allowing for Betty to have a moment where the poor woman realises that once again she's become romantically involved with an adrenaline junkie. Poor Betty. She never could catch a break. Well, that's until the Marv Wolfman era when she shags Peter, despite being a married woman. Not one of Peter's high points, that. Anyway, back at the Kingpin's place, Spider-Man has managed to create a web balloon with a pocket of air in it for him and Jonah to breathe. And when the Kingpin's men, including one that looks like Mr. Spock, enter to dispose of the bodies, Spidey makes short work of them. How Spidey takes care of Spock is very funny. He just slaps him on the top of the head with the palm of his hand. Spider-Man leads Jonah out and realises that Jonah is actually properly terrified. This is great. It's a great moment of characterisation. People like us take it for granted that our heroes will be in these high-pressure situations all the time. But Jonah works in an office. He's not a superhero. He's not used to people pointing guns at him on a daily basis and threatening his life. It seems perfectly believable to me that a civilian, even investigative journalist like Jonah, would be a bit panicked in this situation. Spider-Man and Jonah are attacked by more thugs. Spider-Man yells at Jonah to run, even threatening him, a move Jonah takes to heart. Sadly, Jonah walks smack dab into a low-hung pipe, knocking himself out. Unlike in Star Trek V, where Scotty did this exact same move, this isn't played for laughs. Interestingly, more played for pathos, as Spidey thinks Jonah's got away. To that end, Spider-Man locates the Kingpin, just as he and Foswell are having a little tete-a-tete. The Kingpin feels Foswell isn't ruthless enough for this caper. Either that, or he's a spy. Stan and John here again show their expert plotting skills. We still don't know who exactly it is who will die a hero, but there are a few suspects at this point, and there's always the possibility Foswell hasn't returned to crime. He could still be working on a story, and Jonah could be in on the whole thing. This has been an excellent opener to this issue, rattling through its opening ten pages at a fur clip. There's a mini cliffhanger here as Spider-Man interrupts the kingpin as about to kill Frederick Foswell. Spider-Man prepares for a rematch as we switch to the silver spoon slash the coffee bean. This is one of the few times I actually didn't appreciate seeing Gwen and the groovy gang. I was so wrapped up in the kingpin plot, I didn't really want to interrupt it, which demonstrates how good this story is. Normally in this era, the Peter Parker stuff is gold and the Spider-Man stuff is quite rote, but here it's the other way round. So intense and exciting is the Spider-Man material, I don't want to stop reading it. I mean, this break does build some suspense before the final act kicks in, so it's fine, I suppose. 
Flash is home on furlough, despite having only just left. I assume he's finished his basic training and is on leave before he ships out. There are numerous references to Vietnam, which we kind of have to ignore if we wish to stick to Marvel's sliding timescale. But overall, this is not rather samey. Flash can't believe that Peter is now considered an okay guy, or a good egg, as Harry calls him. Gwen gently mocks Flash. And Mary Jane doesn't seem to care either way, as long as there's a party in the offing. I do like that Gwen rebuffs Flash's many attempts to hit on her by taking the piss out of him. She would do this quite a lot, and either Flash went along with it because he's not as stupid as he seems, or he is as stupid as he seems and he just never realised what she was doing. Back with Spider-Man, the battle with the Kingpin continues, a fight that is a lot more evenly matched than you would think. In the background, Foswell spies his chance and flees, but not before grabbing a gun off the Kingpin's desk. The Kingpin is toppled, which has apparently never happened before, and instead of continuing the fight, which he was winning, Spidey only got off a lucky punch, the Kingpin chooses to run. Spider-Man reasons that this is because the Kingpin realised that if Spider-Man survived, then Jonah survived, and has probably gone right to the police, which makes a bit of sense. The Kingpin nips down a secret tube, which then blows up in Spider-Man's face when he tries to pursue. Elsewhere, Jonah comes to in one of the funniest scenes in the book. Jonah was knocked out by a water pipe, and said pipe is now dripping on him, which is what awakens Jonah. Jonah then shits himself, thinking it's blood, not water, his abject terror at being completely out of his depth as a joy to behold, and he runs around avoiding gunmen and trying to escape. Fortunately, he bumps into Foswell, who didn't run, but was actually looking for Jonah, and Foswell tries to help, firing back at the pursuing gunmen. In the crossfire, Foswell is shot. He continues to defend Jonah, though even as Spider-Man, who's heard the gunfire, arrives and knocks the gunman out. Spidey stands behind Jonah as Foswell breathes his last, his final words bemoaning how he's failed at everything in his life. Jonah is aghast. Foswell died saving him, and although he doesn't know why Foswell was with the Kingpin, Jonah is aware of one thing. Foswell died a hero. And so, the hero of the title is revealed. Foswell has been a steady presence in the series since issue 10, where he was revealed to be the big man, a kind of old-style gangster and mob leader. After his release from jail, Jonah proved there was more to him, and he hired Foswell back to give him another chance, a, a kindness that Foswell repays here. He made subsequent appearances as Patch, his underworld disguise, and came very close to discovering Peter's secret in issue 46. While it's not as important a supporting character as Betty Brandt or Flash Thompson, Foswell was good background. He gave the series some colour, some flavour. The guy was always around, doing his job, and his shifting allegiances made him interesting. He wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't a good guy. He had textures, different shades, and his loyalty to Jonah was never more keenly felt than in this issue. Ultimately, though, Foswell had nowhere else to go. As the Kingpin pointed out, he had no stomach for the most ruthless side of being a modern-day gangster, but his yearning for the position, the power, the status of being a mob leader ultimately led to his downfall. Foswell has had a few retroactive appearances in Untold Tale of Spider-Man, and this being comics, there's been a little bit of strip mining. Foswell's daughter was dusted off for an arc in Marvel Team Up issue 39 and 40, where she was also the big man, and she also met her end. In the recent Amazing Spider-Man Volume 109, Issue 13, writer Nick Spencer has Foswell's son also be a bad guy. 
In one of the little-known crossovers between DC and Marvel, Fred Foswell's brother, Sam, also worked in the newspaper industry and ended up being editor of the Daily Planet in Metropolis for a while, although I suspect that that one is a little bit more unofficial. The issue closes with the police arriving and a coroner taking Foswell's body away. Jonah tells Ned Leeds to give Foswell a front-page write-up and not to skimp on his heroic deeds in saving Jonah's favourite publisher. Jonah also vows to write another of his articles against Spider-Man, who he claims is more of a menace as you never know whose side he's on. This is deliciously ironic. Foswell was more duplicitous than Spidey ever was, but Jonah lavishes praise on Foswell, yet can't acknowledge Spidey's role in saving his skin. Spider-Man overhears all of this and he's angered, but his anger subsides quickly. He knows if he had to do it again, he'd change nothing. He'd still save Jonah's life. The last panel is wonderful. Spider-Man in shadow leans against a billboard and ponders sleeping for a week. This is a great storyline. Essentially, it's a trilogy as it starts in issue 50. But however you read it, it's hugely underrated. The Kingpin getting away is quite novel, although the Green Goblin was never caught either, so it seems Stan was thumbing his nose at the comics code whenever he could. Romita's plotting is exceptional, and as I said at the top of the show, I really do think it's with these past few issues they really came into their own as a team. My Omnibus takes a break from the regular book here to publish Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 4, The Web and the Flame by Stan Lee and Larry Leiber. Now, I do have a massive soft spot for this story, as I first read it in a 1979 UK Spider-Man annual reprint. Reading it now, though, well, it's utter dog shit. The art is substandard compared to John Romita. The story is that old Stan Lee standby heroes get conned by bad guys into making a film, which Stan has never made work, despite it seemingly being his favourite stock story idea. It also shows a fundamental lack of understanding of how films are made. The story, and I'm being charitable in calling it such, is paper thin, to the point where this is literally page after page of the Human Torch and Spider-Man bickering and fighting silly things like robot gorillas and duplicates of each other. The bad guys are Mysterio and the Wizard, and Stan does a good job exploiting their respective egos. He also does fine with some of the dialogue, which is pretty funny in places. But this is Stan off the rails. Each set piece is bigger and more ridiculous than the last. Sorry, Logic, be damned. And it's proof positive, if proof were needed, that Stan needed a good collaborator to bring out his best work and calm his excesses. The best bit of the annual is the supplementary material at the back. There's a nice look at the coffee bean, a rehash of Spider-Man's costume powers and web-shooting capabilities, his strength levels compared to others in the Marvel Universe, a double-page spread of his most famous villains, and another of his and Harry's apartment. It looks like there's a lot of new material here, but it's mostly recycled art. I think my main disappointment with this, though, is that back in the day, annuals were meaningful, and this doesn't feel meaningful. In Spider-Man Alone, annual number one had the Sinister Six. His meeting with Doctor Strange was annual number two. And then there was his tryout for the Avengers in number three. Next time, we'll meet Peter's parents for the first time. Compared to them, this feels like the thrown-together bollocks that it is. 
So, let's get back to the good stuff, should we? Amazing Spider-Man issue 53 has Dr. Octopus smashing Spider-Man against a wall with his arms. Rather boringly, this is another simply brilliant cover. Enter! Dr. Octopus is not, as you might expect, Marvel's entry into the superhero porn subgenre, rather the title of this scintillating story. Our hero has created a web hammock from which to read the morning's edition of the Daily Bugle. He chooses to do this right outside Jonah's office window at the Bugle building, just to antagonise everybody's favourite flat-topped newspaper publisher. Spider-Man can be quite the dick when he wants to be. Bugle staffers hang out of the windows with reckless abandon because health and safety laws were very lax in the 1960s and Jonah screams at him to bugger off because no one's doing any work. Rather, they're watching Spider-Man read a newspaper. I can imagine that the novelty of that would wear off after a while. Spider-Man retorts by scrunching up the paper into a ball and hurling it through Jonah's window. If anyone paid a dime for this rag, they ought to get 11 cents change, he yells as he swings away. I can understand why Spidey is pissed off. The article, which is apparently back-page news, as is the norm for comic book newspapers, paints Foswell and Jonah as the heroes of the piece, and Spider-Man is linked with the kingpin. He swings over to ESU for his day's classes. He swings over Gwen, who looks absolutely stunning in a checked shirt and jacket ensemble, black turtleneck and purple beret. Gwen's clothes budget belies her status as a penniless student. For reasons I don't understand, Flash is hanging around ESU as well. Maybe his uniform gets him a lot of action. Harry arrives, annoyed about being Peter's social secretary, and Flash says, Once an itch, always an itch, which I assume is 60 slang for being an irritant. Rather inexplicably, Gwen retorts, I'd rather itch than switch. I have absolutely no idea what that even means, and apparently neither does Flash. Or Stan Lee, for that matter. Spidey, meanwhile, is changed to Peter Parker in the gym, but he's caught by Professor Warren. Fortunately, Warren doesn't spot the telltale mask of Spider-Man protruding from Peter's pants pocket, instead thinking it's Peter's vest. Or maybe he did spot it, given later events. Warren tells Peter he has two spur tickets to tonight's Science Expo, and if he and a guest wish to join him, he'll pick them up after class. I don't think teachers, even in college, would be allowed to fraternise with their students in this way nowadays, although I suppose it could be classed as a school trip. It was different back in the day. I used to go for beers with my college tutors. Peter runs to class and spots a smoking hot Gwen. Harry is there, giving Peter the cold shoulder. This could be due to Peter hitting on Gwen, being as Harry seems to think as Gwen as his girl, a remarkably enlightened attitude. Gwen tells Peter it's due to Peter's sporadic comings and goings because Harry is worse than Aunt May for demanding to know what Peter is up to at all times. Gwen cares not for poor Harry-o. Rather, she wants to know what Peter has planned for the evening. He tells her it's only the science expo, but she's clearly excited to be going on a date with him, one-on-one, -on -one, although she masks this by telling him it's because she is also a science major. It's a nice reminder that Gwen was at college for a reason, unlike Flash and MJ, who just seem to hang around on the off chance they'll pick up a squeeze. Speaking of Flash, he seems pissed off that Gwen is going out with Peter, and like Harry is under the deluded impression that Gwen is his, and that Peter is trying to beat his time. I have no idea where Flash got the idea Gwen is his. She's flirted in passing, but whenever he tries it on, she bats him away like a pro, normally with a sarcastic put-down. Anyway, Flash has let his uniform go to his head, but Peter isn't the panty waste he was in high school, and he's more than happy to go nose-to-nose -nose with Mr. Thompson. 
Fortunately, Gwen breaks it up, telling everyone they'll meet up later to puff a purple peace pipe. And see, everyone thought Murray Jane was the pothead. Peter and Gwen join Professor Warren in his car, and Warren expresses admiration for Peter's choice of date, which isn't creepy at all, and will in no way lead Warren down the rabbit hole of supervillandom. It's Gwen who knows what's going on at the expo, not Peter. A look at the new missile defence system called the Nullifier, and it's Gwen who knows what it does. It nullifies the homing devices of enemy combatants' missiles. To be fair to Peter, the clue was in the name, and it's not like it was in the paper that he was reading this morning or anything. Oh, wait. According to Gwen, it was in the paper this morning. Hmm. Maybe Peter should read the science section more often and stop reading Jonah's insipid editorials. Once at the expo, though, Peter's spider sense starts blurring, and Gwen notices he's being a bit weird. Peter tries to brush it off, but his internal warning alarm just will not quit. As he, Warren and Gwen take to their seats, Peter is convinced there's trouble afoot. He's not wrong. Just as the demonstration into the nullifier's capabilities begins, a cloaked figure stands up and starts bellowing. Before security can act, four mechanical arms shoot forth and bat away anyone who tries to stop him from stealing the nullifier. The crowd panics, and in the ensuing chaos, Peter uses the melee to steal away and switch to Spider-Man. Apparently, Peter would rather switch than itch as well. I do have to question the rather lax security that allows a man with four extra mechanical arms access to a demonstration about a new governmental weapons system. Did they not do a search? Ock uses his arms to bat away any attacker and even waft away the tear gas out of his face. He's almost away and clear when Spider-Man arrives and the usual banter and battling occurs. The battle is taken outside and up the side of the building. There's a truly great panel where a frantic Gwen looks around the crowd for Peter in the foreground, unable to shake the feeling that he's in trouble, with Spider-Man and Dr. Octopus fighting in the background. In other places, though, the action is muddled. Ock leaves via a broken window and heads to the roof, and Spider-Man pursues him. This is all pretty evident in the artwork. However, Stan has some rather strange dialogue about Ock reaching Spidey before he reaches the floor. Neither one of them is going anywhere near the floor. Spider-Man utilises the old web-up-Ock glasses strategy and Ock retaliates by dropping the nullifier over the watching crowd. Spider-Man plants a tracer on Ock and then leaps off the building, preventing the nullifier from hitting the floor. Without thanks, Spider-Man leaves to rejoin the crowd as Peter Parker. Ock, meanwhile, has used his uncanny arms as a guidance system, escaping back to his lure despite his visual impairment. On the way, he reminisces about his and Spidey's last meeting in issue 33 and relates how he survived. He also reveals he wanted the Nullifier to sell it to a foreign power to then have enough money to fund an empire of crime. So why not just rob a bank? He discovers the Spider Tracer and decides to lay a trap for our wall-crawling hero. Back at the Science Expo, Gwen is still fretting over Peter, who appears as if from nowhere, and lays it on thick that he was trying to find a camera so they could take some photos to make some cash. Apparently, Peter does not live by the maxim of another publisher of a great metropolitan newspaper that a photographer eats with his camera, a photographer sleeps with his camera. Gwen would rather be sleeping with Peter and is delighted to see him, and I think we can assume from this point on she is more than happy to be in a steady relationship with Mr. P, but we'll see how that goes. Warren drops them off at the coffee bean. It's definitely the coffee bean this time. There's a sign in everything. 
Now, normally when I cover stuff like this, I tend not to look too far forward, unless it's just to be snarky, rather looking at the stories on their own merit. But let's pause a second here and look at the later revelation that Professor Warren is the jackal. It's a textbook example of a retcon, in that Stan and John had no idea that this would happen later, but what Jerry Conway did was masterful. Reading this now, it's like it was planned from the outset. So wonderfully do the later stories fit in with this. It's a fine example of not pissing over other writers' works when you do something that alters a past event, but being respectful of that work, yet still making your story fit. What say you, Mr. Straczynski? Anyway, the coffee bean has the usual suspects inside, and Flash will not let it go that Gwen is with Peter. Not only that, but Murray Jane claims he was only a loner from her. Interestingly, Peter didn't seem to give MJ a second thought when offered an extra ticket for the expo, going straight to Gwen as his first and only choice. It's fascinating to look at these stories now and realise that Peter really didn't give Murray Jane the time of day. Sure, he was dazzled by her beauty, and he liked her being around as she's a fun and sparkly presence, but she sure as hell wasn't the one. Harry, meantime, is still giving Peter the evil eye, which Peter attributes to Gwen's interest in it. Out of the blue, Aunt Anna and Aunt May show up to tell Peter they are taking in a border as they have a spur room. That sound you hear is the thunderous sound of foreshadowing brewing overhead like a storm. Peter leaves with the two ladies instead of staying and spending more time with Gwen, which makes me realise that he's probably taken too many blows to the head. Flash and Harry are remarkably catty, with Harry pointing out that with Peter gone, there's not one man too many for the girls. Arguably, there's only one man there now, Mr. Snarky Pants. Meanwhile, Doc Ock lays a trap for Spider-Man, building an elaborate dummy of himself and planting the tracer on it. This seems like an awful lot of effort to go to. Why not just put the tracer under a chair or something in a room with no windows? Having dumped the oldsters, Spider-Man is now swinging over the city, trying to locate the old familiar warning tingle of a spider tracer. He finds it at the dock of the bay, but the tingle turns to a warning. Spider-Man spots that Doc Ock doesn't seem to be moving, and that the spider tracer seems to have moved from Ock's frock coat to his arm. This makes our hero understandably suspicious, and he chucks a web ball at Ock only for the resultant explosion to convince the delightful Doctor that our hero is dead. With Spider-Man out of the way, or so he thinks, Ock can bide his time and wait. Of course, Spider-Man isn't dead, and he vows to find Octavius and end this silly game. This is an enjoyable issue, but it's not as exciting as the previous three. Still, a bit of a breather does us all a bit of good, and that's really what this issue is. It brings Doc Ock back and establishes him as a force to be reckoned with still. It moves the characters around a bit and sets up the future, especially this story will be quite an extended one, running through issue 56, and then wrapping up further loose ends through issue 58. For now, though, let's just concern ourselves with issue 54. Spider-Man holds Aunt May, who has passed out in his right arm. His left fist is clenched as he watches Dr. Octopus run away, smashing walls out of his way as he goes. Say it with me. It's great. The tentacles and the trap opens with yet another encounter between Aunt May and Otto Octavius. 
After their first meeting back in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1, which is referenced here, and we'll come back to that in a moment, Otto has answered May's advert for a border, which Stan dropped subtly into last issue in a passing mention that wasn't at all contrived. Both May and Otto remember each other, and Otto accepts the room sight unseen. May refers to her past encounter with Otto as a visit, when, in fact, he kidnapped her. Also, and this is why I said we'd come back to it, there is always debate about when the sliding timescale started, Peter's age, when certain events happened and whatnot. Well, Stan is still moving along in real time here, having May refer to the events of Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 1 as happening in 1964. The issue is cover dated November 1967, roughly three years later, putting Peter at around 19 here. This kind of jibes with the upcoming issue 57, which states that Peter is still a college freshman. If I remember correctly, it has been established elsewhere that Gwen was 19, 20 years of age when she was murdered. So in between here and Amazing Spider-Man issue 122, published in 1973, will be just over a year of Peter's life. This is where the Marvel sliding timescale approach could give you a headache, so probably best not to think about it too much. Anyway, May is hesitant, believing that she read somewhere about Otto being wanted by the police, a situation he hand-waves as being a simple misunderstanding. May, not surprisingly, completely falls for this. She gives Otto the room because, fortunately, Anna Watson is away. Otto is elated. The filth will never find him here. One of the things the writers of other superheroes often struggled with was bringing an element of danger to the strips, and the way Stan found around that was to constantly link Peter's life to that of Spider-Man. Now, this is stretching credibility somewhat, but no more so than Superman claiming he needs a secret identity to protect his loved ones, but then proudly proclaiming to everyone who listened that his girlfriend is Lois Lane. Besides, this isn't what causes my suspension of disbelief to stretch to wafer-thin proportions. That's later, when May will inherit a nuclear island, and Otto will try to steal it from her by marrying her. Our hero knows none of this, of course, so after a fruitless search, he calls May to see how she is. Oh, Stan, how you loved your little ironies. See, Peter is looking for Otto, who, unbeknownst to Peter, is living with his Aunt May, whilst Otto, unaware that Peter is Spider-Man, thinks that Spider-Man is dead. Who says this isn't the Marvel age of stultifying soap operas? Otto retires to his room to set up his communications equipment, allowing him to converse with his minions. Peter, meanwhile, is still having troubles with Harry, who still has a chip on his shoulder about the hours Peter keeps. To be fair, when Harry tries to talk to Peter... Peter shuts his door instead of just closing the cupboard where he has his Spider-Man costume. Granted, he's making some web fluid, but I doubt Harry would have realised that if Peter had just said, Oh, all this stuff that I've got here, oh, it's just a project for class. You know the science expo I went the other night with Professor Warren? Yeah, this is for that. Because, you know, I don't know exactly what Harry does at ESU, but I'm pretty sure he's not as science savvy as Peter. Or Gwen, for that matter. Earlier on, I mentioned how in some places Robbie has always been there, and in other tellings, he's new to the Bugle. Well, Peter meets Robbie for the first time in this issue, and Betty clearly says he's the new city editor. Continuity conundrum solved. Robbie is already curious as to Peter's incredible look, as to how it is that he manages to get such great Spider-Man pictures, but Peter brushes it off as beginner's look. Peter has been doing this for over five years at this point, so one has to wonder, at what point do you stop being a beginner? Anyway, Jonah asks what Peter's done for them lately. 
Peter is actually here looking for clues about Dr. Octopus, but Jonah hasn't a clue where Ock is, and he suggests Peter go and hunt out his pal Spider-Man. After all, Spidey and Dr. Octopus are probably in cahoots. Peter can't be arsed with any of this and heads to the Coffee Bean, where MJ and Gwen are being chatted up by two randos. Both of these stunningly beautiful ladies immediately lose interest in their potential paramours and start verbally fencing over Peter Parker. Peter announces that he is here to rescue them from lethargy and boredom, to which MJ replies, We're getting rid of Gwen? What a cow! Wow! Gwen ignores MJ, to her credit, and Peter tells MJ that ditching the beauteous Miss Stacy isn't an option. Gwen does refer to herself and Mary Jane as wide-eyed wenches and asks if Peter's up for a threesome. Well, I think that's what she's saying, but with Stan's wacky dialogue, who can say? She's basically just called herself and MJ a ye oldy term for a prostitute and then asked if Peter wants a talk-in with them. A talk-in without the hyphen apparently means when two people are getting to know each other so they can hook up. So Gwen is practically signposting her intentions. MJ thinks that three's a crowd. What a fun sponge. But Peter is capable of screwing things up all on his own, and rather than spend the afternoon with Gwen and Murray Jane, he elects to go and visit Aunt May. What a fucking moron. <sighs> Peter arrives at May and Anna's home, only to have his spider sense almost break his head in half. The reason becomes apparent when he meets May's boarder, Otto Octavius. Peter is frantic. He tries to tell May who she has under her roof, but she's all, Oh, it's all just a misunderstanding. And Ock is cooler than a fridge in summer, offering to talk to Peter man to man. Ock's man-to-man talk consists of Ock telling Peter that if he tells anyone where he is, Aunt May will be fitted for a pair of cement shoes. See? Peter almost has a panic attack. Ock shoes him to the door, and Peter is so dumbfounded he lets him. Outside, though, Peter vows to come back under cover of night as Spider-Man. You know, this is almost quintessential Spider-Man. Peter's elderly aunt has taken in one of his oldest foes, causing Peter untold stress as the two parts of his life collide like two rugby players going in for a tackle. And, as with that pretty crappy analogy, Peter is left reeling and stunned, unsure of what to do or where to turn. You know, the strip may have lost some of its quirkiness since Ditko left, but it's amped up the melodrama that arguably made the strip the successful superhero soap opera that it was. Later that night, Spidey is as good as his word. He arrives as Ock receives a delivery. There is some outstanding work here from Ramita. The panel of Peter watching the house from under a tree, Spider-Man seeing the shadowy figures swap their parcels, and then the wonderfully evocative shot of Ock working with his test tubes lit from underneath are all stunningly effective and noirish. Peter wants this to go quietly, so rather stupidly, Spider-Man shines his spider signal in through Ock's window. If Ock were as smart as he thinks he is, he'd wonder who exactly told Spider-Man he was here and come up with the one and only potential answer, Peter Parker. But Ock tosses that thought away and calls his minions from his master planner days. The minions have grown in number since last issue and they quickly zoom over in a helicopter and attack Spider-Man in the leafy suburbs of Forest Hills. A helicopter appears over a quiet residential area. 
Spider-Man fights at least six purple-clad adversaries, knocking over trash cans and attracting a crowd. Oxmen flee as police sirens blur as the police arrive. Do you know, I'd say that Peter's plan to handle this quietly went swimmingly. Spidey spots May in the crowd, and realising Ock is pulling a Kevin McAllister, he bounds over the street and smashes his way into two elderly women's house. Gee, I wonder why Spider-Man has the reputation that he has. They fight a bit, trashing the room in the process, until May returns. Ock manages to convince May that Spider-Man caused all of this, which isn't actually a lie, and May passes out. Ock grabs his stuff and smashes his way out of the house, leaving a massive hole in the wall and reducing the property values in one fell swoop. Couldn't Ock have just left through the window that Spidey already broke? It would have saved May any more insurance claims. Peter realises that May was far more scared of Spider-Man than Dr. Octopus, and this guilt nearly crushes him. He calls Doc Bromwell over and changes his clothes. Bromwell asks the single most hilarious question in the history of comics. Do you know what caused the shock? Instead of answering with, you did see the massive hole in the wall caused by two costume morons fighting on your way in, didn't you? Peter takes the more diplomatic route and says, gee, I don't know. Broadwell leaves and Peter, showing his lack of understanding as how walls are built, muses that he needs to call a plasterer in. You need more than a plasterer, Pete. He also raises his fists to the heavens and vows that he will rid the world of Dr. Octopus forever. Wow, the melodrama is strong in this one. And because of that, the issue is balls out fun. Stan has gotten really good at this point of making this feel like it's a multi-part epic, but it's not really. This issue can be read in complete isolation of last issue and still work. I can't imagine that Peter's vow will go well though, as issue 55 is called Doc Ock Wins. John Romita's deceptively simple cover is an extreme close-up of Ock's face, with Spider-Man reflected in his glasses. Spidey is trapped in Ock's tentacles. Angry and upset, Spider-Man turns into Ock's known hideouts, rooting his minions as he goes. Ock is only present via screen, and he teases Spider-Man with his lack of concern for our favourite wall crawler. This is in marked contrast to the last few issues, where Ock was obsessed with Spidey. Spider-Man's anger is fueled further by the taunts, and he trashes the hideout and webs up all the minions for the cops. There's no clues given as to if Spider-Man calls the cops or not, but he says that the police will pick them up, so we'll just assume that he did. Spidey even checks out Oxhold Underwater Den from issues 31 through 33, but it's still flooded, so no joy there. Peter Parker is one of those people who angers quickly, but who quickly finds that anger subsiding, and so he decides to check on May. Meanwhile, US Air Force Colonel John Jameson has been put in charge of moving the nullifier to a more secure location, and he chooses one of Tony Stark's factories. Unbeknownst to Jameson Jr., there's a snake in the grass in the form of a spy working for Dr. Octopus. John goes to bat for Spidey, saying he has never believed that Spider-Man and Ock are in cahoots. Hmm, that's severe cloud of foreshadowing is moving in again. Elsewhere, Peter finds May in good spirits, Anna Watson having returned. For two old gals, neither seems particularly bothered by the fucking massive hole in the house. Anna, in particular, seems nonplussed by the damage. Maybe she's been partaking in some of Murray Jane's herbs. May is convinced that this was all that awful Spider-Man's fault and Otto Octavius is the wronged party. Murray Jane arrives and Peter's reaction is hysterical. Boy, she's all I need right now. 
<laughs> yep, there's Peter's soulmate. Mary Jane apparently wants to see a hole in the wall. I'm not kidding. That's why Mary Jane dropped by. To see a hole in the fucking wall. Around the wall, there are no warning signs, no temporary structural placeholders, no sign a builder has even been to check that there's still a safe place to live. Nothing. Peter hasn't even cleared the rubble off the floor. Selfish bastard. Gwen then arrives. Gwen, in contrast to Mary Jane, is here to see if she can help. See, Mary Jane? It's not that hard, is it? Apparently, Gwen is not turned on by semi-destroyed masonry. She's none too upset to have interrupted Mary Jane and Peter's alone time, although Mary Jane seems very pissed off about it. MJ rather bitchily points out that Gwen could simply say goodbye when she asks if she could do anything to help. Mary Jane is a real bitch to Gwen in these issues. Retroactive continuity would have you believe that these were really good friends, but I don't think they are. I don't think they can stand each other. Stan then makes one of those interesting creative decisions he made every now and again. He takes Spider-Man and his scene partners off the page for nearly a third of the book and focuses instead on the antagonist. Ox Grass manages to get in touch and tell the bad doctor the secret route for the nullifier. The scene is highlighted by the panel at the bottom of page 9 where a lone Doctor Octopus has smashed the convoy, shipping the nullifier, taken out all the guards and left the scene a wreck full of smoking cars, engines spilling out their guts and wounded guards. It's one of Romita's finest works, conveying how deadly one person with Ox power levels would be. Sometimes superhero comics lose themselves in their worlds too much, amping up the destruction and the power level of the characters to completely unbelievable levels. This scene is relatively low-key by comic standards. Dr. Octopus is but one man, but he still manages to completely destroy a truck, three cars, outsmart and defeat the guards, and leaves the scene devastated. If you saw this level of destruction in real life, it'd be a traumatising experience. With John Jameson in charge of this fiasco, it's no surprise that Jonah is first on the scene, although it is a surprise that Ned and Robbie are there as well. Jonah is convinced Spider-Man is involved, but we clearly see Robbie's level head when he tells Ned to ignore Jonah's bluster and report the facts of the story. It's 3am when all this is going down, and Peter is out as Spider-Man rather than being at home in bed, something that pisses off Harry when Jonah calls to make Peter aware of the situation. When does Peter sleep? By dumb luck, Spider-Man blunders across the scene and he figures out that Ock will do what is least expected of him and heads to the Stark factory that was set up for the Nullifier in the first place. This is exactly where Ock is and he's already using the Nullifier to gain access to the factory by rendering all weapons useless. Ock has an absolutely wonderful moment of megalomania here. I am supreme! Supreme! he cries out. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, this world is mine! Of course, it's at this point Spider-Man arrives. In all honesty, this is not one of the more interesting or dynamic Ox Spidey dust-ups, with Mickey DeMio's inks robbing Romita's pencils of their urgency. The fight doesn't really get interesting until Ock whips out the nullifier and aims it at Spider-Man. For some reason, the nullifier negatively affects him for reasons not adequately explained, but as the nullifier's power setting seems to be whatever Stan wants it to do, it's interesting that Ark at least postulates the idea that it's Spidey's own powers that are causing the problems. Spider-Man doubles over in pain and almost blacks out. Ark is delighted. He's not quite sure why the nullifier affected our hero like this, but it's a damn fine result, whatever the case. It's about to get better. 
when Spider-Man stands up, he has no idea who he is or why he's here. Ock wastes no time in telling Spidey that he and Spider-Man are partners in plunder. The amnesiac well was probably bone dry by now, and Stan has drank deeply from this plot fountain before with Norman Osborn. That being said, it's a fun development, even if the issue itself isn't all that. Lee and Ramita are clearly working on a bigger canvas now and taking their time with the plots, even when, as in this case, the plots really don't support that extra level of detail. Still, that seems like an excellent cliffhanger with which to finish this week's episode. Next week, I'll be wrapping up the uh, essential volume that I'm reading, which will start with Amazing Spider-Man issue 66. Stick around after this commercial message for your emails. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. You need to take out the trash. I don't have time for that now. We have two podcasts I have to create up new promo for. What? Both JLU cast and Supermates? Yes. JLU cast where you and I discussed the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited animated series from Bruce Timm and company. And Supermates, our original show where we talk about all sorts of geeky stuff, including our annual House of Frankenstein series on classic horror films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. But how do we combine this into one promo? I have no idea, but it sounds like we're doing our original Supermates promo all over again. I kind of think we are, but hey, other folks kind of aped it, so it must have worked. Well, why don't you get to work taking out the trash and I'll finish up. Great. So join us, Cindy. And Chris. On JLU Cast and Supermates, both proudly part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, found at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Our first email tonight is from Daniel Doty, Andy on the Edge of Forever. Hailing frequencies oak, Andy. I would say it's been a while since I last heard your voice on a podcast, but I've been going through a lot of old episodes of Hey Kids Comics, specifically the complete Nightfall saga, so it's like you never left. Anyway, I couldn't wait to get home from work when I saw you posted another Star Trek commentary, this time on the city on the edge of forever. On a personal note, this is one of the few dozen or so episodes of classic Trek I owned on video cassette back in the 1980s. The original VHS, which I still own, was kind of infamous because at the time, Paramount hadn't cleared the song Goodnight Sweetheart for home video distribution, so they replaced it with new original music. Despite being widely considered to be one of the best episodes of the series, there was always a bit of controversy over City on the Edge of Forever. The late Harlan Ellison was extremely vocal about not being happy with the finished version of the episode, insisting his original vision was far superior. I very much appreciated your furnace in comparing and contrasting the differences between the television episode and the original teleplay comic adaptation, pointing out instances where certain elements worked better in Harlan's teleplay, whilst at the same time acknowledging there were times Roddenberry and co. were right to change it in the finished version. Of course, the biggest difference between the two versions was the death of Edith Keeler. Harlan always maintained that in his script, Kirk was so head over heels in love with Keeler he was totally willing to abandon everything to save her, resulting in Spock having to hold Kirk back at that fateful moment. This is the one thing I could never accept about Harlan's original ending. Not only is it so out of character for Jim Kirk, it completely knocks the legs out from under the episode. I'm willing to accept some of his other original ideas, but this? No, 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 no. Interestingly, I didn't get that impression from the comic adaptation. Despite claiming to be Harlan's vision, perhaps Scott and David Tipton modified the story a bit to make it work better. Either that or I need to read it again more closely. Until next time, this has been Dan Dirty saying, 
Let's get the hell out of here. P.S. I'm waiting for you to finish your Voyager rewatch retrospective before giving my overall thoughts on the subject. Yes, it did seem like the Tiptons not toned down, but did make the ending work perhaps a little bit better than it may have played in the script. And the Vo- the second half of the Voyager one, I'm currently nearing the end of season five. So although I have not been able to record for a while because of, of real life, I have been writing episodes. I have got about four episodes in the stages of writing. Um, uh, This Spider-Man one has obviously become two episodes just because of the amount that I've wrote. Uh, I'm working on an Orville episode, an episode about Time Lash, the episode of UFO, the best episode of UFO, um, and some other things in the pipeline. Because although I have been unable to get to a microphone, I have had a lot of time where I've just been able to sit and write, where I've been waiting for Anya. Um, and when my wife's been at work, it's just been a case of finding a coffee shop and holding up. So there's a lot of episodes being written. I just need to find the time now to uh, to actually sit and record them. Uh, Chris and Cindy Franklin have emailed in. Hello, Andy. Palace on the edge of forever. Great to have Palace back, if just for a bit. You're certainly allowed to take breaks, but I did miss the show. Well, I'm hoping that now that that thing with the annual show is finished and I've got a holiday coming up but after that I'm hoping to get more into the swing of regularity again as I said there's a lot of episodes written I'm just I just need to find time to record them City on the Edge of Forever is one of those rare occasions where I feel like the rewrite is better than the original I've read Ellison's prose version of the script and whilst I agree it's great in its own right the filmed version is much tighter and certainly better for Trek the ending alone, where Kirk hesitates to do what needs to be done, would have neutered the character for all time. As a heroic lead, he needs to be fallible, but never weak. It would have also robbed us of some of the best moments in television. City is also rare, and it is one of the few hyped best-of shows that actually is. It's not only great Trek, it's great television. Thanks for doing this, Chris. Yeah, I, I do like City on the Edge of Forever. I've got the reputation of being a bit down on episodes like City on the Edge of Forever and Tribbles. But my, my thinking with them is, is they are widely praised elsewhere. So why don't I praise episodes that don't perhaps get love elsewhere? Um, I do think City on the Edge of, of Forever is brilliant. When I watched it for this show, I was just... I was completely bowled away by how good Shatner and Nimoy were in that episode. And um, it's something I kind of think I'd forgotten, just how good they are. Uh, the final email tonight, Kirk Groenwald. Uh, hey, Andy. Hey, Kirk. I was pleasantly surprised to hear you comment over the Harlan Ellison episode of Star Trek City on the Edge of Forever. I found that whilst commuting, I could envision every scene from the classic episode. Your comments were great, and you added several points to the considerable canon that I already knew about the episode from reading Harlan Ellison's Tell All book. First, I've never heard of the acronym C-O-T-E-O-F before, and I can see why it would be used when writing or referencing this 28th Star Trek. My wife has shared that she hates acronyms and avoids them at all cost. I've never known anyone to have such a passion to avoid them before. Makes me glad I coined the term score episode for all of you at uh, Two True Freaks. Second, desiring to listen to the commentary while watching the show, I hunted for the episode on YouTube. I discovered there's all sorts of other commentaries, reviews, essays, and fan film videos online, but the actual 28th episode itself is for rent, something I didn't want to do. So I hunted down a cheap DVD copy on eBay and bought it. To my delight, it arrived on Saturday, and so I played it in sync with your commentary and discovered more things, like Kirk rebalancing the grocery sack, Scotty backing up into beam-up position looking for his mark, and Nimoy lunging for his knit cap, and also reaching forward to power off the tricorder as he leaves. All nice touches. 
The famous set of Floyd's Barbershop is, in fact, from the classic Andy Griffith show, something that I never watched as a kid. But others spotted it, and have shared that nugget. I wonder if the other storefronts we see, Radio Repair, Grocery, Photography, Second Street Mission, etc., are also from the same series, if there are windows were just sign-painted for this Star Trek episode. Do they show up in Miri? <clears throat> I don't remember if they show up in Miri, but it seemed like Miri did a lot more set dressing than this episode did. City on the Edge of Forever... For all its expense, and it is an expensive episode, it seemed like they just filmed on the set that they had. They didn't seem to do a lot of set dressing to it, so I doubt that it's in Mirror, but it may be. It could be in the background of Mirror. Finally, my family is in a debate over what subject you teach since you make references to having to teach several nights. From your grasp of story structure, character beats, music cues, character development of various media adaptations, I'm guessing you teach writing or creative writing or playwriting at a community college or university. My wife thinks you lead a discussion or class on popular culture and the media, and my daughter thinks it could be basic lit or 20th century lit. Care to give us a verdict on this? How close are we? I am completely flattered. You think I'm good enough to deliver any of that? Uh, I tend to do uh, ICT customer service, English maths and ICT functional skills, and all of that kind of stuff for apprentices. But I would, if there are any vacancies in those areas at a university of anyone who's listened to this, let me know. Because apparently I'm good enough to teach all that shit, which flatters me no end. I'd love to do that. I think that'd be great fun. Thank you, Kirk's family. I'm made up with that. Enjoying your analysis, as always, whether it is Star Trek, Fantasticast, or Listen to the Prophets. Your friend, Kirk Greenfield. Well, thank you very much, Kirk, for emailing in. Glad you enjoyed the episode. Same with Chris and Daniel. If you want to email in, heykidscomics at verdimedia.com is still the email address. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next time, I will follow up with the rest of these Spider-Man issues that are in the... Um, omnibus up to the next bit and then after that it could be anything that i'm currently working on the orville ufo time lash voyager whichever gets finished first thank you for joining me as ever this is a two true freaks presentation and remember it's all gonna be okay (laughs) 